Each morning, when I arrive at my primary care clinic, the first thing I do is open the electronic medical record and hunt through my inbox. It's a hodgepodge of folders, patient calls, patient messages, outside messages, contact center messages, staff messages, prescription messages that often overlap and are frequently overloaded with the medical equivalent of spam. But there's one folder, post-mortem, that's unambiguous in its content and purpose. With a single melancholic click, I changed the status of a patient from alive to deceased. And it was this mundane act that always brought on the tears, the ridiculous equivalence of a stupid computer click with the loss of a human life somehow dissolved the last of my composure. That was Dr. Danielle Ofri, a physician at Bellevue Hospital, an author, and more, reading from her first opinion essay entitled, My Postmortem Folder and the Intensely Personal Nature of the Latest COVID-19 Surge. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, we understand that the health of people and the health of the planet are deeply interconnected. We recognize that integrating sustainability into our business will limit our impact on the environment and help us realize our vision of a world where access to life-changing therapies transforms human health. Learn how we are seizing sustainability at Cytiva.com slash sustainability. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash sustainability. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thanks. It's great to be here, Pat. You've been working as a physician, if I have the timing right, since the 1990s. If we'd been having this conversation two, maybe even three years ago, how would you have described your daily routine? Well, you know, at, at two or three years ago, I was just a primary care doctor. I work in a clinic at a, a public hospital, Bellevue Hospital in New York City. It's an academic teaching center with NYU. And so a typical day is, you know, you see your patients and it's the standard, you know, blood pressure, depression, diabetes, obesity, you know, bread and butter of um, primary care medicine. We have medical students, we have residents coming through, we have conferences, and, you know, that's the day. What kind of population does Bellevue serve? So Bellevue is a, a public hospital, so we are open to all. Um, we have quite a variety, a very varied population. Many of the patients um, will either be uninsured or have Medicare and Medicaid, but there are many insured patients, many immigrants, um, many working people. And then, of course, you know we're near the United Nations, so we're also the designated hospital for the president of the United States, should he or she fall ill while in New York City. So we're open to all. <laughs> I never knew that. So as the pandemic emerged, how did your work change? Well, you know, starting in, in really January, February, we began sort of thinking about this because we had Bellevue as a city hospital, a big city hospital, really, you know, receives all sorts of diseases from all over the world. And certainly um, we're used to that. And when Ebola came, we actually were one of the few hospitals that took care of an Ebola patient, in fact, the only public hospital. And so we had a huge ramp up 
And therefore, we were prepared. In fact, the E-team, the Ebola team, still existed and was meeting weekly ever since Ebola, keeping tabs on pandemics around the world or epidemics around the world because they often come to Bellevue. So when coronavirus first came up really in China and then in Seattle, we thought, okay, we'll, we'll get a handful of cases. We've got the Ebola unit, right? We've got four rooms there with the super negative pressure rooms. We, we can handle this. We've done Ebola. How hard could coronavirus be? Um, but obviously quickly in March, it became clear this was not going to be like that. And there was a probably two weeks in March where every single day, um, your entire workday was different. And on a dime, we ended up closing down our, our outpatient service, which is- That's huge. Huge. We, um, I don't even know. We have something like 500 million outpatient and emergency room and urgent care visits that come through our clinic. So it was enormous. Um, you know, we got rid of all the non-COVID patients in the hospital. So everyone else disappeared. We erected a tent in the, in the courtyard to handle the testing and the ER overflow. We began taking transfers from other hospitals that were even more overburdened than we were. And so the hospital really changed overnight. We opened up wards that had been closed down. And, you know, we had a, a morning meeting that used to be once a week. It became every day. And it was the must-see TV. You had to come and see, like, what changed. Like, all of yesterday's protocols, they were gone. And every day was a little bit vertiginous. So were you juggling both being drafted for COVID work in the hospital and trying to see your patients by, you know, whatever way you could do telehealth? Yes, I think everyone was. And or we were covering, you know, if someone was inpatient with COVID, then we'd have to cover their patients too. So we'd be juggling each other's patients and then, you know, we'd be doing shifts in the tent. And um, and at the time, my recollections of March in the tent is it was freezing. <laughs> it was, I mean, being outdoors was better for ventilation and, and infection control, but it was frigid. <laughs> so we had a lot of wet, cold days out there. Um, and then trying to call our patients and call each other's patients. And I remember getting... Um, a message from someone else's patient, a, a, uh, an adult daughter of her older father, you know, and basically the father was dying, but she didn't know that. And the father was decompensating at home, um, you know, incoherent and, and losing uh, control of things. Normally we'd admit this patient. She was absolutely not taking to the hospital. We have to manage this at home and trying to manage really someone who was at, at the end of life um, for multiple reasons at home, not even my patient, but, you know, if it fell in your lap, you had to follow it through. So we had all kinds of things like that that would happen that were just, you know, heart-wrenching and, and very unsettling. You've written in the past that you're not exactly a huge fan of the electronic health record, but it sounds like the electronic health record played a little bit into your kind of the intensifying of your discomfort with COVID. Could you talk about that a little bit and your relationship with the postmortem folder? Well, the EMR is—it's a mixed blessing. It's a tool, especially as we were as patients were transferring between hospitals. You imagine forty patients show up from another ER to yours. They all have the same diagnosis, right? Many have very similar names. Um, imagine how many patients could get mixed up. We all recognize that this would have been infinitely harder without it. On the other hand, <laughs> the EMR has—it um, feels like there's like static in your head all the time. The inbox or the in basket, they call it has like 25 folders and they're all filled and they all have related, unrelated, overlapping things. And I can never figure out, I can't figure out what's important, what's not important. It's just an onslaught of stuff 
buried in there are occasionally very important things. And there could be 50 things that are unimportant. And they all look the same from the outside. And so you're just sort of, it's like a, a swarm of locusts all the time in your head. And you never, you never clear it. So yes, it really bothers me. But the postmortem folder is the one folder that has no ambiguity. And when that folder lights up, then I know someone that a patient of mine has died. And it, it's, uh, you know, terrifying to open up and say, okay, who is it going to be? Because you don't know until you open it up. So that's the postmortem folder. And, and then sometimes, and that's if a patient dies in our system. If a patient has died elsewhere, I hear about it when I call them, then I have to let the system know the patient has died. Otherwise, the system doesn't know. So I have to go in and write a note, which we title the expiration note. That is what we call it in medicine. A patient has expired. And so you write the note and you explain patient, you know, contracted COVID. They were admitted to another hospital. They died. Here's the date, you know, and you write the note. Um, but then you have to tell the system the patient's no longer alive. And so there's a, a field in the demographics area, where, which is called patient status, which when I first saw, I thought this is absurd because the status was alive. And of course, everyone's alive. They're all walking in the door. What do you mean? It's, it's so crazy. But then I realized, and COVID certainly taught me its purpose, because I had to change the alive to deceased. And so you make this little click change. It's really minor, but it's so heavy. You are making this enormous pronouncement. This patient has gone from alive to dead. And of course, as soon as you do it, it feels like salt in the wound. A big alert comes up. Are you sure you want to do this? And like, oh, God, you have to tell me again. My patient said, yes, I am sure. And you do it again and you click it. And then the postmortem folder immediately lights up because a death has been recorded. Each time it's like more salt in the wound. That's kind of when I lost it because, you know, you're, you talk to the patient, you hear about the death and you're holding it together because you want to, you know, be together for them and, and, and explore their emotions and not yours and, and, and be a support. And you go through that, then you write your note and you hold it together. And then you make that click. And for me, that's usually when I lost it, the idea that I'm kind of closing the book on this patient's life, or at least the medical book on that. And there's something so, it's just sad. It's really, we're marking it. It's, a, it's official, it's formal. Um, and it feels so final. And that was, uh, I somehow that little bit always undid me. You know, you wrote a first opinion for us last year in March or so, kind of talking about how clinicians need to move beyond the fear. What, what were you driving at then? You know, I, I started that piece, you know, thinking about Ebola and now coronavirus coming up. So this was actually before things got really hairy. A lot of people were very terrified. Oh, I'm not handling that. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to be taking care of that. And I really felt like, I really felt as though, you know, we need to move beyond the fear because, you know, if, if we don't, who will? A and what was really heartening to see is that I think that clinicians did do that, you know, 150%. And you could see it really everywhere. People came from out of retirement, they came from other services, you know, all of the coronavirus patients came to the general internal medicine service, and we quickly ran out of medical interns, um, or medical anything. And of course, all the other patients, surgical patients left. So we had all these surgeons and ophthalmologists, and they all, you know, came right up the orthopedist. I mean, how often do you round in a medical intensive care unit with, you know, two orthopedists, a urologist, um, an ophthalmologist, and a dermatologist. <laughs> and it was amazing that people, you know, whatever you need, and um, do you need me to learn how to give dialysis? I'll do that. And there were people doing that. Um, so it was very heartening to see that people really did, I think, put their fear aside 
And, and I think the hardest thing for people was that you know, they had family to come home to. And that's where I, I think the the fear was was biggest, not so much for themselves, but you know, would you infect your family? Would you bring it home to your children? Uh, and so, so many people moved out from their families or lived in the basement. And, and that part was really hard for people. How did you cope with that? Um, you know, you come home, take off all your clothes, you know, throw them in the wash, jump in the shower, you know, scrub before you left the hospital, you know, and just be very careful. I mean, and really have to be cognizant that, you know, you have family too. Um, and it, it was hard, you know, your whole family, for most of us, were staying home. And often we were the only person in the family leaving the house every day. So in some sense, my family was completely protected, except for me. That's an interesting aspect of it. I'm married to a nurse midwife who somehow was not able to deliver babies by Zoom and had to go and see patients. And we thought about trying distancing at home and just realized it wouldn't work. Did you ever, you know, think about that with your family? We did, but I live in a New York City apartment, and so distance is <laughs> not not possible. You know, those separate bathrooms for everyone and six feet of distance. You know, so we just gave up and you know crossed our fingers and and you know. You know, in your recent first opinion essay, you wrote that the initial surge of COVID nineteen in the spring of twenty twenty had been, I'm quoting, a blur. But the one that started at the end of twenty twenty and continued on into the spring for you felt intensely personal. What made the difference? Well, in the in the beginning, at least for me, the patients that I was seeing, they weren't my patients. Now, of course, some of my patients did die. Um, I often didn't know about it because they were ended up elsewhere. And 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 though I found out, and these were tragic, I I wasn't involved in their care. But it, it felt like only a small number of my own patients truly got sick that I I knew of. Whereas all the patients I were seeing were somewhat anonymous. And I, and I say that, you know, kind of in quotes, they weren't anonymous. They were obviously real people uh, with individual identities, but it was very hard to connect. Remember, everyone's wearing PPE, everyone's masked up. And so it's hard to talk. It's really all the things you would normally do to connect with a patient when you're testing them or taking care of them. That was all gone. You couldn't make small talk. You couldn't see their face. They couldn't see your face. So it was very hard to connect. And patients were moving all the time, you know, ER to ICU to inpatient output, you know, so much shifting, transferring hospitals. It was just a blur. Um, and my patients had disappeared. Like I, I most of my patients just seemed to have evanesced. Whereas, you know, in, in the in the winter, of course, my, now my patients were back at least, you know, telephonically or by video visit. Um, but they start to get sick at such higher rates. The prevalence in the community was much more in the winter spring surge than it was in the first time, just because the numbers were so much bigger. So now every day I'd come in and I'd have more patients with a diagnosis of COVID and that hadn't happened, or at least I hadn't been aware of it, but suddenly it was my patients and I had to manage them and they were at home. They didn't want to come into the hospital. So now we were managing from you know a distance I was very fraught. The patients were terrified, you know, because you don't know who's going to, you know, do poorly and trying to get, you know, pulse oxes at home and trying to manage their fear and, and fears of infecting their family. And it would be every single day. And of course, then, and some definitely died. And I would hear about it sometimes after the fact. Sometimes I'd call for a regular visit. You know, it's a 2 p.m. hypertension visit. I'd call up and the patient had died or they were in the ICU at another hospital. So I kept, you know, hitting this um, and it felt relentless really December, January, February, um, every day I had new patients with COVID. Uh, and so that's when it felt personal because I, I know all these patients and I know some of them for years. I have a few that go back 20 years and, and lots for five or 10 years. And so it does feel very personal. And 
you know, now that we have a patient portal, they'd be messaging me, you know, two, three, five, six times, you know, over the couple of days with questions and concerns and, and questions that I often couldn't answer, you know, what, what to do, what to predict. I mean, we didn't have answers. And, and so a lot of uh, anxiety uh, to manage, a lot of ambiguity and shades of gray that were just, you know, hard to reassure people when you don't have the facts that can answer the questions that they have. It sounds like sometimes you were really blindsided by um, patients' deaths or diagnosis. That must be difficult for people like yourself who like to be on top of things. Yeah, that was really hard to to, to call a patient and find out they had died or to call up and find out they were intubated. You know, um, five patients who are dying of cancer, I know their death is imminent and, and you know, we all prepare psychologically and emotionally and practically, but these were unexpected. Um, and, and that was really, really hard. And, and there were just so many of them. And, you know, normally in primary care, obviously some of my patients died at any, any point, but many more did now. Um, and also was the many more serious diagnoses I had to give. You know, we had a whole year or half year of patients who didn't get their mammograms and didn't get their colonoscopies, didn't get their routine labs. So there was this backlog of serious illness that turned up. From September onward, I gave more serious diagnoses than I, I've ever had. You know, cancer and, and, and strokes and heart disease, ALS, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, you know, a lot of serious diagnoses and it felt very concentrated. And that was very different than my normal life where these happen once in a while with patients, but here it felt relentless. Right. It's like you couldn't see the storm clouds gathering. You just got the storm. Exactly. And you didn't even, you know, my office has no windows. So you don't, you come out, all of a sudden it's pouring out there. You, you weren't, you had no idea it was even coming because you're in a windowless office. And it, it did feel like that. And I think it also felt like that for the patients. You know, I, I had a patient go, um, who had a, a cosmetic thing that needed to be repaired, an old hernia from an old surgery that we were putting off during COVID. And then when COVID went down in the summer, so let's, let's get that scan and get that, you know, get that thing repaired you know, we found a mass. She wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting it. And all of a sudden we were in a new place that we really d did not plan to be. And, and that type of thing happened over and over again. In your first opinion essay, you describe talking an intern through her first intimate experience with a patient's death. And she asked you a question, how am I going to do this for the rest of my life? And I think that's a really fundamental question, especially for primary care physicians like you who develop long-term relations with hundreds, maybe thousands of patients. Even without a pandemic raging, some of your patients die, some unexpectedly every year. Do you go to funerals? Do you visit with them? How do you cope with that? You know, it's one, it is one of the things you do. I mean, in primary care, we take care of patients throughout their life, uh, which is often includes death. Um, it's it is very sad. And in, in the real world, pre-pandemic, I would try to go to funerals if I could. It's often very difficult. Funerals are in the middle of the day. They're, you know, short notice. You've got patients scheduled. It's often very hard to do. And so, so often I, I have not been able to go. But the times I have been able to go, it's been so meaningful, both for me and for the patient's family. You wrote that feeling that is actually a good sign. Like feeling that kind of emotion is a good sign. If we don't feel sad when a patient has died or during a pandemic like this, then we've lost something. But the fact that we retain the capacity to feel, that makes us human. And that's what makes this job so important. I mean, listen, um, 
you know, artificial intelligence could do a lot of what we do and the computer and the EMR could do a lot of what we do. It's, it's, there's no rocket science in, in, you know, managing cholesterol levels, but they can't really help people through this difficult moment and they can't feel for it. And so we should welcome all these clinical tools to help us out. They're, they're, they can be fantastic. But what we also bring to the table beyond that is the ability to connect as human beings and to feel the sadness when it's sad we should feel sad. That's normal and human. We may not you know, break down in tears at that moment if that doesn't help our patient, um, but we still have that sadness. We must tend to it at some point and maybe not in the room with the patient, but, and sometimes it is okay in the room with the patient. That depends on the situation. But if it's not, if it's, an, if it's another time later, we still have to give it its due. I think if we don't, if we simply push it aside, uh, then we lose something. And I think when, when doctors and nurses feel burned out, when they feel unconnected to their patients, it may be part of it from spending years or a lifetime of shunting aside the very real emotions that come up during medical care. So if I have the chronology right, you came of age as a physician when AIDS was a far, far more deadly disease than it is now. As you wrote in an essay for the New York Times, I'm quoting here, the utter relentlessness of the disease pummeled the doctors in training as well. It felt as if we were slogging knee-deep in death with a horizon that was a monochrome of despair. Witnessing your own generation dying off is not for the faint of heart. That's pretty powerful. One's early years in a profession can often influence a whole career. Did, did AIDS shape yours in some ways? Oh, oh yes. And, and, you know, those moments, you know, it's interesting. I wrote those words before, <laughs> well before the COVID pandemic. And I think this generation of trainees has gotten that a very similar type of, you know, being thrown in the water of of death uh, in a concentrated way that I think many people don't don't get, and it does. And one of the things I recall about AIDS then is because our treatments were fairly limited, we often didn't have much time to connect. We certainly didn't have long term relationships. I suspect that one of the reasons I was drawn to primary care is that we do make long-term relationships. And I think part of it was really a reaction to the only being at the sort of end of life and, and critical moments for patients. I, I wanted to be there for more of it before we hit that time. Um, and also when, when coronavirus came around, I think for uh, my cohort, there was a familiar feeling. We, we've been here before. We, we have faced this, you know, we've faced the risks to ourselves. We face seeing young, healthy people die. What you did as a resident it's not just your training, it creates who you are and how you are as a doctor, and it um, imprints you for life. And I don't think people's law school experiences, and maybe I, I have no idea, but I don't think it imprints you in the same way. It defines how we practice, how we think, who we are, and each generation of doctors and nurses has their own moment in time they train, and that forms who they are. And this generation, th this is theirs, and it will very much affect the kind of doctors and nurses they'll become. In, in what ways do you think that, how will that manifest itself, do you think? Well, I think there's a, I, I hate the term resilience because it's, it has so many corny overtones, but there is a true resilience in that the healthcare system, you know, could turn over on a dime. I mean, things you couldn't imagine happening for 20 years happened in a week. And the idea that you can just do it, you know, even things as simple as, well, you know, healthcare workers can't work from home. Um, well, all of a sudden they could, you can call your patients from home. You know, you can work out of your area, you can do different things, you can recreate. And the idea that things aren't fixed, that you can innovate 
we did it on, on a dime when we had to, but why can't we innovate when we're not in a pandemic? Why must we take what exists as gospel? Right? Just because it's the way it is doesn't have to be. And so I hope that you know um, creativity and and willingness to challenge what we do normally will be part of that. I also think it it really brought the calling out. And I think for people who maybe were feeling frustrated or burned out on the aspect of, oh, what am I doing this for? I think we really got a dose of that. And I think this uh, generation of doctors is very motivated. I mean, it's clear we can we can see it. You know, they didn't uh, hesitate a moment to step in. Even the medical students, they graduated, you know, a month or two early to step right in. They didn't have to. But it really sort of reemphasized why we're in this. Um, I mean, if you want to make a good salary, there are many easier routes to go. I mean, you could do an MBA in three years and not, you know, get vomited on your shoes ever. So you can really have easier ways to to earn a decent living. How many people get to say, boy, I have a higher calling for what I do? And that's inspiring. And so I, I, I hope and I think this generation of doctors and nurses will feel inspired by that. So I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today, Danielle. This was terrific. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Pat. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which first opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.